With me today is Dr Michael Reid. Michael is a specialist in intensive care at the Austin and Northern Hospitals in Melbourne, Australia. Michael's extensively published in a range of areas, including the management of sepsis, nutrition and uh, refeeding syndrome, research processes and data analysis, outcome prediction and various pathological states, end-of-life care and uh, the effect of hyperoxia in um, outcomes. He also uh, has a doctorate in uh, cellular and molecular pathogenesis of nitric oxide production in human septic shock and has worked with luminaries in the intensive care world such as John Kellum and Derek Angus. And it's my great pleasure to invite him to the podcast today. Welcome, Michael. Thanks very much, Todd. Thanks for the invitation. What are we trying to achieve when we're we're sedating patients? It's interesting, isn't it? There's almost a, a, a convergence of three separate entities here with sedation, um, delirium slash anxiety and, and pain. Um, it's, it's almost it's difficult to measure you know, how the, each of those different components. Do you have any comments on that? Relax. 
relaxation and as grant hypnosis by giving a sufficient amount of um, analgesic. And I think if you, you bring that sort of concept into intensive care, the, the things that you end up talking about are, are just those three, um, sedation, delirium and, uh, and analgesia. And I, I think a, a very good place to start is to say, well, we might get away with no sedative if we can control a patient's analgesic requirements and we can control their delirium with a specific anti-delirium agent such that uh, once those two elements are controlled, we may not need to give any sedative medication at all. Now, we may, um, but probably the dose of that sedative medication is going to be very much less than if we, we tried to control delirium and analgesia with solely a sedative agent uh, by itself. Uh, and so, so I think um, in any talk about sedation, I, I, I start out by talking about that triad of intensive care cognitive management, to coin a phrase, um, and emphasise that specific treatments for the other two of those arms might, uh, or really does, reduce the need for uh, sedative medications in particular. Are there commonly accepted ways of measuring um, all three of these components? There are a number of different ways of, of measuring each of them. It's probably true to say that uh, the literature and, and clinical practice hasn't really settled on a, on a one best method, and that's actually probably because there is no one best method they're trying to sort out, uh, trying to measure the fairly similar things. But uh, to, so to talk specifics, uh, delirium, there's probably, I know of about four uh, delirium monitoring scales, but the two in most common use are the intensive care delirium screening checklist and the confusion assessment method for the ICU or the CAM ICU. So the CAM ICU um, is, a, is, a, is a tool, is a checklist if you like, um, of assessments that you make at a single point in time on a patient. So you go to the patient and you assess their level of sedation, uh, you assess their ability to um, not quite follow commands but interpret a, a set of instructions um, and then you record how accurately they're able to follow those, uh, those instructions. Whereas the intensive care delirium screening checklist asks a nurse, because it's usually a nurse who's doing this, um, who's observed a patient over a period of time, and that might be a shift or a 24-hour period, to rate the presence or absence of eight, eight uh, features of delirium. So whether they uh, um, uh, were restless in the bed, whether they were picking at uh, uh, their intravenous lines and so on and you score one point for each of those eight things that are present and then you add them all up and if you have more than four of the features, these described features of uh, delirium then you're delirium positive if you like and so each of those two approaches has advantages and, and disadvantages um, if you've got a, an inattentive nurse um, then perhaps they're going to miss some of those signs and you're going to have the diagnosis of delirium missed and, and in fact there is some evidence that the sensitivity of the intensive care delirium uh, screening checklist is a little less than the CAM ICU. The CAM ICU forces you to go and make an assessment, um, but uh, it's an assessment at a single point in time, and, uh, and delirium is a, a fluctuating level of consciousness, and so if you've made that assessment at the wrong point in time, if you like, um, then potentially you're getting inaccurate results. So I, I think there's uh, an argument that we haven't quite got the perfect assessment tool for delirium in intubated patients just yet. Um, but, but certainly any yeah, studies that are published uh, will use really now one of those two tools um, to quantify 
haven't come up with anything better than that. Uh, people in, in uh, sedated patients talk about um, an assessment of uh, facial expression as much as uh, they do in paediatrics. Um, my understanding is that's a little less validated than uh, the visual analogue scale technique. Um, but, but really, I think we're, we're, we're chasing a, a very subjective uh, experience of pain and, um, and then we're unlikely to get anything better than those uh, fairly, fairly blunt instruments. Uh, sedation's managed, or at least uh, targeted, uh, by a plethora of scales. Probably the two in most common use in Australia and New Zealand are, are either the Riker scale um, or the RAS, the Richmond Agitation Severity Scale. Uh, so at our hospital, for example, we use the, uh, the Riker scale and uh, uh, it's got, uh, I don't know, off the top of my head, I think, um, six points, but I know that uh, we aim for three or four, which is essentially a patient who's um, calm and cooperative or, or mildly agitated but, uh, but fairly settled. Uh, the RAS essentially has similar uh, points, but uh, applies different numbers to them, and, and, a, and a RAS score of zero is a, um, is, is a calm, cooperative patient. Um, there's not a lot of evidence to say one or the other of these scales is, is any better. There's a theoretical argument that the RAS of all of the scales um, might be the superior um, in that uh, most of the other scales, including the Riker, um, describe a number of features at each point on the scale. So um, they'll say something like um, uh, the patient is agitated and unable to be calmed by verbal reassurance. And, and so you're not really sure what happens if, if the patient's agitated, but they are able to be calmed. Where, where do they fit on that scale? Whereas the RAS has a, a single description um, for each of those points. But, but really, that, um, in the validation studies of these scales, that, that's not actually been found to be of um, practical significance. And so really, the, they're, they're not quite interchangeable, but, um, but there's nothing to recommend one over the other. As you suggested a little bit earlier, we've, we've seen a almost a staged withdrawing from our process of sedation in the last decade, haven't we? And it started with sedation holidays. I wondered if you could explain that concept. Yeah, indeed. So uh, I suppose at the time um, that was a, a fairly um, revolutionary concept um, that a patient who you'd assessed uh, as requiring uh, ongoing intravenous uh, sedation um, could have their sedation turned off as a matter of routine, not uh, not as something that was thought to be medically indicated, and only uh, reintroduced um, when um, when it was demonstrated, when you demonstrated, you as the patient demonstrated that um, that you actually needed to be resedated, and then the sedation uh, was retitrated um, to to what was considered an acceptable level. So that was. Um, that was first shown to be a, a beneficial technique um, in a single centre study published by John Cress in the New England Journal in 2000. And, and, and as you say, that was probably the first paper that got us thinking that maybe patients could do with less sedation. In fact, indeed, maybe they might be able to do it at least for a period of time without any sedation at all. Um, and and the, the, in that study, of only 128 patients, there was a very uh, significant effect um, whereby people who were randomised to, uh, to the intervention group, the, the uh, interruption of sedation group, um, had significantly reduced uh, duration of mechanical ventilation and, and length of stay in intensive care. And there was a subsequent study published, uh, I think, 
in, in Java um, called the ABC trial, which um, ABC standing for Awakening and, and Breathing Control trial, um, where patients were uh, were randomised to both. Um, uh, well, all patients uh, every day had a, a trial of spontaneous breathing, so they were taken off the ventilator and uh, allowed to breathe. But uh, but they were randomised to either get or not get um, a, a routine interruption in their sedatives, and, and similarly. taken that or seen it taken to the nth degree now haven't we with some results that came out uh, just recently on no sedation Uh, 
opens a, a, another topic of discussion, uh, and then that's um, the concept of uh, analogo sedation or analgesia-based sedation. You sometimes hear drug companies, and indeed one drug company in particular, um, talk about this concept uh, in relation to remifentanil. If you give enough remifentanil, um, you can certainly not only um, affect analgesia in a patient, but you can sedate them, you can give enough of this very titratable drug um, to send someone to sleep. And that's true of the other opiates as well, but it's just easier to do with remifentanil uh, because it's such a titratable and, and rapidly acting drug. I think that's the wrong way to think about uh, the concept of analgesia-based sedation. I think a better way is to say that, uh, well, really in every patient, we'll treat pain first. And if the patient subsequently declares themselves as needing sedation, well, we'll treat that specifically. So going back to that uh, sort of triad of intensive care cognitive management that we started talking about, and I think that's what this strong trial's really done. They've, they've adequately treated pain in both groups in the trial. And in one of the groups, they've said, well, if you don't need any sedation, we won't give it to you. If, if you need it, you can have it. And indeed, some people assigned to the, the no sedation group did get some propofol because they demonstrated that they needed it. And, and the other group just got routinely sedated with propofol. And, uh, and the results of the trial were quite, uh, well, convincing, really, that um, uh, if you were randomised to the no sedation group, that being allowed to have some sedation if you demonstrated you needed it, uh, you had uh, less time on the ventilator, a shorter ICU stay, and, a, and indeed a shorter hospital stay. Uh, but I, I, I think it, it would be wrong to interpret that study as, as a protocol suggesting that some people in intensive care just got nothing. Everyone got good analgesia, and, and as a spin-off from that analgesia, um, they yeah. required less sedation. I think that's uh, the, the proper way of interpreting the study. It certainly seems that the, the balance of evidence seems to be favouring a, a much more tempered approach to sedation, but it's, it's always concerned me that there may be longer-term consequences that we, uh, that we are unaware of, things like, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder. Is there any evidence of, of those longer-term outcomes? There is a little, um, and most of the evidence suggests that people receiving lighter sedation don't develop PTSD. But I think it would also be fair to say that that hasn't yet truly been sufficiently studied for us to be sure of that. And, and, and indeed, the, the study by Strom was a little concerning um, in that people randomised to the, in inverted commas, no sedation group, um, had more agitated delirium during their time on mechanical ventilation than did the people who were, who were sedated. Now, whether that translates into a long-term um, problem for the patients, or indeed whether the patients can recall that period at all, isn't, isn't yet clear, and I'd, I'd be fairly convinced that uh, the group who performed that study will, will go on and do that long-term analysis, because as you say, that, that really is the question. Um, you, you may be buying, buying in inverted commas, uh, a, a marginally increased or marginally improved uh, outcome in terms of mortality at the very significant cost of, uh, of increased PTSD. But at the moment, there's, there's very little evidence to suggest that's the case. Michael, is there a best agent in terms of sedation? Where, where are we with the evidence in terms of the available agents? So I, I think if, if 
we talk about uh, sedative agents in particular and uh, therefore separate the discussion a little from the concept of analgesia-based sedation, the, the things that uh, are commonly um, spoken about in the literature and, and, and indeed on water rounds would, would be propofol. Um, and in Australia and New Zealand, midazolam is our IV benzodiazepine and, uh, and, and, and to a degree pushed by pharmaceutical companies, uh, dexmedetomidine. the inevitable question from that is is uh, dexmedetomidine treating or preventing delirium or is it the uh, midazolam that's causing it? to be pretty clear that patients who get a delirium do worse in intensive care than those who don't. The, the question I guess that I still struggle with is whether we can impact on this, whether the treatment of the delirium actually makes an independent difference to their outcome. 
whereas you develop delirium some days down the track. And so, so adjusting for severity of illness by using a score that was measured maybe a week or two weeks ago in the patient's uh, stay is, is problematic. And therefore, these, these studies that show delirium as an independent predictor of outcome, and, and therefore one that you would think if you could treat would, would improve outcome, um, I, I think, uh, well, I think on balance they're probably right because the, the effect is, is, is so large. Um, but they're probably not quite as right as, as people think they are. <laughs> that makes sense. Yep. You mentioned hypoactive delirium, that, that state where patients are clearly confused and, and have fluctuating mental state but don't have that active uh, agitation that we talk about. Is there, are, there, are we talking about similar diseases here? Do we know much about the attendant mortality and morbidity of, of hypoactive delirium? Well, we do, um, really on the basis of just one paper. Um, so there have been a number of papers describing uh, uh, the fact that, that hypoactive delirium is much more common, maybe five to ten times more common than um, purely agitated delirium. Um, but curiously, those papers don't go on and, and correlate that with outcome. Um, there was one paper in the Archives of Surgery uh, this year, uh, Robinson was the first author, um, that did uh, find a, a much greater mortality in people with hypoactive delirium compared to hyperactive delirium. But I, I think probably that's, that's not surprising. Um, and again, it comes back to a, a marker of disease severity. So it, it's not hard to think that if you're an elderly person, if you're particularly unwell, then you're not going to have the, the get up and go, if you like, to manifest agitated delirium. Now, whether that reflects a completely different pathological process that's going on in your brain or whether it reflects uh, your body's inability to respond in the same way uh, is absolutely unclear. Um, but but I, I think it is, is pretty true that hypoactive delirium is, is, is the worst state to be in. Now, that then begs the question, well, what do we do about it? Well, these, these studies that I've talked about where delirium incidence is uh, lessened by a particular sedative strategy compared to another, um, I, I think show that trying to avoid that delirium, that hypoactive delirium in particular in the first place is, is a good idea. Um, but once it's established, there's absolutely nothing to guide treatment in, in those patients. Really every, um, every treatment we have for delirium and, and, and all of the treatments, are, with the exception of dexmedetomidine, and various forms of antipsychotic, uh, are sedating uh, as, a, as a side effect. And, and do we really want to be giving a, a sedative agent or an agent with a sedative side effect to somebody who's already hypoactive? Um, it sounds a bit questionable, I'd have to say. And, and there's no study that says that that, that is the thing to do. Um, and, and in fact, I, I, I really don't know anyone um, um, who, who would practice that as a, as a matter of routine. So there's no real, just to summarise, there's no real uh, guiding literature on how to deal with these patients who are diagnosed with hypoactive delirium. That's correct. And, and you might think, well, gosh, that's a surprise. We know so much about how to deal with hyperactive delirium. And, of course, we don't. <laughs> um, there's only two studies uh, published demonstrating uh, a positive effect of an intervention in hyperactive delirium. And remember, that's the minority of people who have delirium. One uh, is the, the Devlin study of quetiapin, um, which is a study of only 36 patients, but uh, those 36 were randomised to receive either um, quetiapin uh, at an escalating dose, um, depending on their 
that's shown any any uh, positive effect was was our own study of uh, dexmedetomidine versus haloperidol, uh, which I alluded to before, um, showed a very beneficial effect of, uh, of dexmedetomidine. But that was a study of only 20 patients. So really, uh, what's 20 plus 36? Our, our entire knowledge of what to do with uh, uh, hyperactive delirious patients is, is based on uh, studies of only 56 patients around the world. It's quite quite astonishing. So where to from here? Is there research on the horizon that you think will change the way we manage this? There, there is. Uh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so I, I, I know that there's a number of groups overseas uh, looking principally, actually, I'd have to say, at preventing delirium rather than treating it once it's there. And, uh, and then the two groups that come immediately to mind are uh, Wes Ely's group at uh, Vanderbilt in Tennessee and, uh, and, and Yuka Takala in uh, Europe. In terms of treatment of um, delirium, uh, there's our own study un under the, uh, the auspices of um, the ANZICS clinical trials group, um, which uh, is, is the study of dexmatomony versus placebo with all other aspects of care uh, as, as required or dictated by the, the treating clinician. And with the opt-out clause that if uh, someone's not improving after 48 hours, they can receive open-label dexmatomidine if, if, in fact, the clinician feels uh, that at that, that stage they've lost equipoise and they really want to treat the, uh, the clinician, uh, want to treat the patient with, uh, with dexmatomidine. Now, that, that study's powered on a pilot study of only 20 patients and, and really um, being as conservative as we possibly could uh, in, in, with the intention of making this a, a, the phase three definitive clinical trial of dexmatomidine for established delirium, um, being as conservative as we could with the sample size, we could only get that to 96 patients. So that's being done in, in eight centres around the country uh, and I'd, I'd hope to have the results of uh, that study by the end of next year. And the other thing that's worth talking about in a local context is, um, is the, the SPICE uh, study, so the sedation practices in intensive care study, um, that looks um, more at the, the prevention side of things um, and, and, uh, and looks to uh, prevent the development of delirium in mechanically ventilated patients, not only by adopting a particular pharmaceutical regimen but to take a, a sort of multimodal approach to the prevention of uh, delirium, including things like um, uh, daily wakings, um, uh, optimisation of the environment of the patient, uh, frequent titration of sedative and analgesic uh, drugs to effect rather than to a, a set protocol and so on. So the protocol for that study is, is still in development. We're about to embark on a pilot study uh, in, I think, around uh, eight centres around the country. Um, and with the information that we get from that uh, pilot study, we'd be intending to make this uh, another um, big ANZIC CTG trial uh, in the region of 20 to 30 hospitals around the country, which, which I hope will answer the question fairly definitively of, uh, of really what we should sedate a patient with uh, as soon as they come through the door of an intensive care unit. I think that study, uh, well, the pilot studies are really about to start, um, but I don't think we're going to have the results of the definitive study for another a couple of years at least. Sometimes the best way to wrap these things together is to ask an expert what they would do in their own practice. Can you briefly summarise what, what your approach to, to sedation and delirium screening management is? Yep. So with all the caveats that I've, I've said uh, and, and the imperfections of the, the current evidence, um, you have to make a decision on the, the basis of the imperfect evidence that you've got. So, so our practice at the Austin, for example, um, where we've just rewritten 
delirium protocols um, is, is to minimise midazolam use as much as possible. Um, to, to start out by treating a patient's uh, perceived pain, and, and we understand that the, just the presence of an endotracheal tube is, is uncomfortable for a patient. So, so virtually everyone gets an infusion of morphine or fentanyl. Um, and once the patient has sufficient analgesia, if they need a sedative, uh, we'll use propofol. And we'll titrate that to um, a goal, sedation, and we'll leave that in the nurse's hands. So, um, so rather than uh, needing a prescribed uh, target of uh, sedation, we'll just tell the nurse that, well, that all, you know, tell them anything. They, they understand that a lighter sedation is, is better, and, um, and then they, they titrate those medications as they feel appropriate. Um, if a patient develops delirium, um, we adopt a, um, a sort of basal and then, then bolus approach to anti-delirium medication. So on the basis of the uh, Devlin quetiapine trial, we, we start them on regular quetiapine of 50 milligrams twice a day enterally, and if necessary, increase that to 200 milligrams PD. And then if the patient's acutely agitated, uh, despite the institution of regular quetiapine, we'll, we'll add PRN haloperidol to that. Um, and, and really only in specific circumstances will we use things like dexmedetomidine or, or clonidine, um, thinking that the evidence at the moment for those sorts of approaches is, uh, uh, isn't as good as it is for uh, quetiapine, but in the knowledge too that uh, we're a participant in, in our trial of dexmedetomidine. And, and so if a patient uh, um, has, has largely recovered from their critical illness, could be extubated uh, were it not for their delirium, um, we'll randomise them into the into the daily trial, into the uh, trial of dexmedetomidine versus placebo, in addition to all of these other uh, delirium management features. Michael, thank you very much for your time on the podcast today. It's been a wonderful opportunity to pick your brain on some of the, uh, the literature and the practical aspects of delirium and sedation management. Thank you. More podcasts like this one can be found at our website, www.crit-iq.com.au.